Well, coffee is going to be the downfall of our society, so that's actually okay. Uh, coffee, the common cold, or um, massive withdrawal when they run out of the raw materials that make up ADHD drugs. Yeah. One of those three. Or all of them at once. All, we'll just run out of coffee, uh, happy pills, and I'll get colds the same day. That's what 2012 is. We're out yeah, of caffeine. Exactly. We're out of caffeine. We're out of caffeine pills, and we're all sick. And welcome to I Thought They Smelled Bad on the Outside, a show with no friends and a desperate need to put out content by the weekend. I'm Scott, and with me today is a righteous dude. <laughs> Introduce yourself. I'm not a righteous dude. I'm the righteous dude. I'm David from the podcast and Spooky Outhouse. And thank you for coming on and talking about this thing. Well, here's the thing. You lured me up. Like, I could not resist the siren's call when you put out the topic suggestion to me, so this is really your fault. Yeah. Well, I, I, I told, I'm not going to lie. I totally stole that move from Tony. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know, Tony of the Backseat Producers has exactly one move to get a person on his show. It's like, we're talking about your favorite thing. Yep. This is basically how I get anyone on this show. That's how I managed to get Kathleen on last time. Well, it's a pretty good move. It is a surprisingly effective move. Because even even if, like, well, you know, I love it, but I don't really want to talk about it. Then, like, the, ne- the, the escalation there is that you slip in, oh, yeah, man, I can't wait to talk about these five books. And then, like, like you say that to me, and then it's like, oh, but there's seven. You're that wrong already, I have to come on and make sure. But yes, we are, uh, in this particular episode, we are talking about Stephen King's opus, Grand Master something of uh, series, The Dark Tower, which he started, which was first published, the first book was published in 82, finished up with book seven in 2004, the only uh, book in the series to actually win any awards, and... Um, it follows the adventures of a guy who is totally not Clint Eastwood's man with no name character wandering <laughs> across uh, this weird post-apocalyptic wasteland on a quest to find a tower <laughs> and bit the of, things that happen to him on the way. Bit of trivia. I know that the first book was published in 1982. However, I tell people it was published in 1983, so they think it was published the same year I was born. Ah, that's a true story. See, the second book was published in 1987, which actually was the year I was born. Uh, I was the fourth. I was the fourth thing that was drawn. That, that that's what I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling it. Hmm. All right. All right. Um, yes. So, Dark Tower is. It, it's sort of an interesting. Interesting case. It's one of the two things that get mentioned when you talk about. Um, 
what Stephen King's best works are, and in an, and in a way that the it's a really great way to look at his whole career because it gives you this nice cross section because the gap between most of the books lets you see him you know in his early days like Gunslinger was like the fourth novel he really wrote mm-hmm. and then book seven was supposed to be the thing he retired on and then he just kept writing more stuff <laughs> and then you get to see his very him go through the years on various different chemicals and then you know under the influence of Van <laughs> which, which is perhaps more damaging to his career than the drugs than his were. Legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually an interesting point that I really, typically when I think about this, I don't really think of it in terms of him. Uh, but you're right. There's an obvious overshadow of him growing as a writer while this is evolving. That's an interesting way of looking at it that I don't think I ever really have explored in depth. It's just an interesting thing to sort of read them all together and then read them as part of, you know, going through his career. Like, if you read, you know, a bunch of his mid-80s stuff and then go into Drawing of the Three and then keep going forward, you know, skipping a few books and Uh then hit Wizard Wizard and Glass in the late 90s, you really do see a a lot of change in his style and, uh, you know, just his development as an author. And something you don't often see in these longer series, they do, authors tend to stick to one thing for, well, till it kills them in a lot of uh-huh. cases. So, uh, just as an aside, because I'm also, in addition to being a huge Dark Tower fan, I'm also a huge Stephen King fan in general. You said that uh, when people talk about his greatest works, the Dark Tower is the other thing that's mentioned. What was the uh, the first thing? The first thing is usually the stand. Really? This is what I hear. This is me talking to other Stephen King fans. I'm sure there's a bunch of people who will say, "No, his horror stuff from the, you know, like his the early horror stuff was mm-hmm. his best stuff." And I'm like, "No, you're, you're just wrong." Really, most the the book that I hear get the most praise outside of the Dark Tower is The Eyes of the Dragon. Ah. Really, The Eyes of the Dragon is what drew me in initially. Uh, when I was younger, my dad would tell my brothers and I stories before we went to bed, and he would usually pick some of the short stories from, from Stephen King, like like The Jaunt, or the one where they're trapped on the sand planet. I can't remember the name. But he would, t- I mean, he would tell these stories to us, and then I got super interested in reading Stephen King, and I'm like, Dad, I'm going to read it. And he's like... Yeah, maybe you should hold off on that. <laughs> read Eyes of the Dragon instead. So I read it and I loved it. I'm like, man, I, I got to read more from this guy. So then my dad had the Gunslinger, uh, but I never read it. So I picked it up and I read it. And I'm like, oh, dad, this is the best story ever. <laughs> and that's where my love affair with Stephen King began. Yes, and I guess it's also worth mentioning is that um, a lot of his other works do end up tying into this series, like uh, Salem's Lot, um, uh, Eyes of the Dragon and a few other, a few others. I'm trying to think of Insomnia, like, Talisman. Well, not so much Talisman, but Black House. Yeah. Hearts in Atlantis. Well, the first story in Hearts in Atlantis, which th- this is something that bugs me, is that the movie is called Hearts in Atlantis when the story, like that, it doesn't even have the story Hearts in Atlantis in the movie. Yeah, I, the thing, the thing that kills me about that is that. 
they change like two things in the movie to make it not reference the Dark Tower. But the two things that they change in the movie to re- make it not reference the Tower are uh, he gets the baseball glove in the mail, which is stupid. And at the end, when the low men take Ted Broad again, spoiler, um, yeah. he does not call out his support to the gunslinger. Like, those are the only two things that they changed in the movie that absolutely had zero impact on the plot and could have been left alone. And it's not like Ted's not a weird cryptic guy, so having him shout out um, you know, his, his praises to the gunslinger yeah, it's Anthony would be out of place in the movie. What are you gonna do? He might eat your face. So like, yeah. So I was. That's why. I, that's why I was most upset with that movie, because I wanted to see him open the envelope and then rose petals fall out. And I got a stupid baseball glove. That that was dumb. Like especially because the baseball glove is only matters in that it ties the other stories in the anthology together. Yeah. Exactly. Like, you so, take out the other stories, and the baseball glove is just a baseball glove. Yeah, it is absolutely worthless to the story as well. So, so what I mean, that was disappointing. But it seems that throughout my quest to get a Dark Tower reference in an actual movie, I'm going to be left pretty disappointed. So. Yeah. So, all right, let's go ahead and dive into this. All right, let's 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 dive into this. Let's break this down. Uh, right. Overall impressions of the series. What did you think? High level, go. High level. I think this is um, prob like in terms of these big like epic seven book seven plus book fantasy cycles. This is one of the better ones I've actually read. I think it um, it, it stays closest to the core concept and doesn't meander as much as some others. It doesn't really introduce extraneous plot elements halfway through. It doesn't add too many... Like, the cast does not inflate for no reason. The, the, this, like... You know, the first book, you know, you have the man in, you know, the man in black fled across the desert. The gunslinger followed. And uh-huh. then, when he catches the man in black, he lays out everything that's going to happen in the next few books. Until the end, really. And then... Most of that stuff actually seems to happen. I'm not saying Stephen King had any of this planned out ahead of time. I'm just saying that he stayed he 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 stayed the path to the path. Whereas something like uh, I'm going to say Wheel of Time, Wheel of Time tends to just get lost in its own setting more often than not. And I think the fact that you know setting and backstory and exposition is basically non-existent in the Dark Tower, is to its benefit. Right, right. It's the... Uh, it, it leaves you to fill in the blanks. Which is which is a cool experience. Uh, so, I love this series of books. This is, this is my favorite series of books of all time. This... It, it closely rivaled by Guy Gabriel Kay's The Final Bar Tapestry, but this is a series of books that I reread probably once a year. In its entirety, and part of the journey of the gunslinger models a lot of my own life. Uh, so, when I was young, I read the gunslinger, and I kept current with these as they came out. And the years that they came out were, 
I think Waste no Wizard and Glass was the first one that I caught at release, and then from then on, it was just something that I just kept, it just I just grew up with it, and it's had such a profound impact on my life that I wish I was Roland. Like if I could, if I if a genie popped out of a bottle right now and gave me the choice of being Roland, I would accept without hesitation. Unfortunately, um, that's not gonna happen. So. I, I don't think that I can adequately express how much I dig this series with work. Like, I'm, I kind of have a half chub right now just talking about it. <laughs> but let's uh, let's blaze into some review and analysis. Do you want to go book by book, or do you want to go the whole multiverse at once, or how do you want to do this? I'm, hmm... Let's almost do this book by book, and then we'll do some broader, overarching things after, okay. after we establish everything. Because the cheat here is that books five, six, and seven are all the same book. Yeah, really. Okay. So, like, like King will say they're all the same book, but no, it, it, that they are distinct books until you get to the end. Yeah, until you get to five, six, and seven, they are like the distinction is gone, and that style stays with you until the end, except for the coda, which is fantastic. Um, yeah. Alright, so let's rock this. Book one. I've book had this one. I've had this theory that I'm gonna come I'm gonna be coming back to as we go through each of the one of these books. Uh that each one of these books is a different fragment of Roland's life. Uh and this is so I'll, I'll just keep coming back to it when we get to the different books. So book one, the gunslinger. So book one, the gunslinger, the story begins. Um you want to talk about the revised, or you want to talk about the original? What's, actually, what's your preference? Um, I read the original, like I borrowed it from the my high school library, and I think if you were going to just read one, you, you would re read that. But if you're in for the whole series, you, you read the revised. Mm -hmm. I think each, like in terms of quality, each stands fairly much on the same ground. But I think one one ties into the series better than the others. It's sort of like uh, I was going to make a Star Wars analogy, and then I lost it. Yeah, I lost it. So I think that the the first book, the original, has the unique attribute of being the only book in the series that really stands on its own. Like if you read the book cover to cover, and you didn't know that there was another one, you didn't know that there was going to be any more books, you didn't know. Anything else, you could read this book and then be complete at the end. It's a standalone story. The rest of them require you to have requisite knowledge of the one before, or and when you're done, it's obviously a lead-in to the next book. So, if I had to pick one, to, if I had to pick one as a preference, I prefer the original, only because it is a lot rougher. And the rough cuts make it feel more immersive, make it feel more more real. Like the the unpolished sections don't detract from the story, but they create an ambiance and a mood that I identify as the gunslinger. When I think of the story, I think of the original and the exact way that it makes me feel. Oh, well, it's a rough setting, so a rough like a, a rough cut of it just mm -hmm. fits. Yep. And when you, at the, at the end of it, the first book is the really, the deconstruction of who this man is, all right? So at the end of it, you are absolutely, you don't know anything about the tower. He's mentioned it, 
I think he mentions it like once at the end. You don't know anything about it, but you know that this man is is a man who is singularly focused. His his drive is absolute, and there is nothing that he won't do to accomplish the goal. And th- that's a theme that comes back over and over again throughout the book. Like he's not an asshole; he's just driven. And it like he's cool with you if you're cool, but as soon as you become a choice between his goal and you, then then you're you're in trouble. <laughs> You're getting bullets. Yeah. Or dropped. And I like, I like, thematically, I like the way that this, I like the series opens. I mean, because it's a very, it's, you mentioned earlier that you don't think that he had it planned out. I don't think that he had it planned out either, because I think he said that, but he's also said the other thing that we had it planned out from the beginning. Um, like, I, I think he knew that at the end, like, I think the ending before the coda, he knew. Mm hmm. I don't think he knew anything else in between those points. Yeah, I, I think that's that's extremely fair. Uh, and, and I like it. I like the imagery here that, okay, I'm starting off in the series of books, and like it, my journey through the books almost mirrors what happens for 75% of this book, that I'm going to wander a long way to get to this goal that's extremely ambiguous, and along the way, things are going to happen, and I'm going to feel conflicted about what happens, I'm going to make some sacrifices, but in the end, there's going to be a campfire, and we're going to figure out what's going on. So I, I like the way that the first book kind of mirrors the journey itself, and that it deconstructs and lets you know at the end of the at the story who this man is and exactly what kind of story you can expect. The original didn't have as much weirdness as the revised, but it the weirdness that it did have, it was more flippant about. Like, the revised tried to explain a few things and tried to toss in a few things from where the story had gone, but the original was just, like, this blatant exclamation mark that's like, all right, yeah, this stuff happens, and it's cool because that happens all the time. You walk in... You walk across the desert for seven days, find a bar, someone's playing Hey Jude. That's just how it works. You go somewhere else, there's an atomic-powered pump. Yeah, exactly. These are just things that happen, so... Doesn't bother the gunslinger, shouldn't bother you. Okay, I accept that. It is also worth noting that the first book has what is probably the best opening sentence in 20th century literature. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I'm a big sucker for effective openings, and that is an opening that tells you exactly what's going on and hooks you. It, it, it's an opening that not only sets a scene, but also sets up an initial conflict. A single line. Where are we? We're in the desert. Who's in the desert? The gunslinger. What's he doing? Chasing the man in black. Who's the man in black? Conflict. Boom. Right there. Like, you know what's happening, but you don't know enough, so you have to keep reading. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you don't know who the man in black is till like, the last chapter. Or, not the last chapter, but uh, the last section, when he, when he gets to the mountain and the mutants come after him. That's sort of... Yeah, the, but that's, even then... You still don't even know. I, uh, I guess like, I, you know his name, but you don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know how much more you want to talk about the first book. I mean, we can go through scene by scene, but if we do that, we're going to be talking for like six hours. Yeah. So. <clears throat> let's let's not talk for six hours. Yeah, I, I agree. There, there are a few things I want to talk to once we establish some more stuff about later books, but let, let's just roll on into two. Okay. Two. Which is the draw- yeah. 
Two, uh, drawing of title, drawing of the three, came out five years after the first, and uh, opens with Roland on a beach, um, apparently next to the man in black who has been dead for long enough to his for his bones to have started to completely disintegrate, and then he gets attacked by crab men. I would, because I'm a pendant, I'm going to point out that he doesn't wake up next to the man in black because he's walked down the beach. Ah. And he's by himself. But that's just because I'm an asshole. Okay. Um, so, the drawing of the three is not my favorite of the books. Uh, it ranks think... somewhere in the middle, with I think Wolves of the Kala being my least favorite. Um, but, drawing of the three is an interesting symbolic book in that Okay, so you've got a clear understanding about the deconstruction of what Roland is from the first book, and now this book serves to explore a lot of the elements that make up Roland. And you get to see firsthand the personification of those elements in a lot of cases. So the drawing of the three are literally aspects of his own personality. Uh, it's no... Eddie, who is his addiction to... or his single-minded drive to something that is ultimately self-destructive in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. And, like, with Mort, Mort's easy, the pusher, because the pusher is really... He's sadistic and is willing to do the types of things to accomplish his goals, and that's kind of a weak one, but that's what I got for that. Uh, Odetta and Detta are an interesting analysis of, of being an aspect of the Gunslinger's character, because you really get the sense from him, from some of the his offhanded comments, that he doesn't really understand his own identity or his place in the world. Uh, and a lot of that stems from the fact that he's made some serious choices, and while he doesn't doubt that he made the right choice, he doubts that he doubts the right that he made the right choice, that even makes sense. Like, yeah, there, I... there are a lot of times where he talks about him not being a good person because of the things that he's done. And those are not the kind of thoughts that you have for somebody who is absolutely dedicated to his goal. And I mean, he's lonely. He doesn't, he doesn't like being alone. He grew up with Cuthbert and Elaine, and they're gone. And like Eddie and Suzanne are kind of a surrogate to that and kind of revitalizes that, that portion of him. Uh, also... Uh, you see this more in uh, book four when you flash back, but pretty much everything that comprises his identity, he was pushed on him too early. So that's another thing that he's not so sure about himself on, is that you know, most of his choices he took too soon. He, you know, he became a gun- gunslinger before you know, he really should have been slinging guns. He uh, you know, lost his first love far too much sooner than he should have even found his should have even found love, and he was, uh, you know, pushed into war very young. Like everything, like everything that formed him, came seems to happen fat, happened fast for him. And uh, you can see that in a lot of his, and a lot of the decisions that he makes are extremely childish decisions. It is very childish to sacrifice everything in your life for a singular focus. He can rationalize it as much as he wants to, and. While he, what he's doing is the right thing is debatable, that's still an extremely adolescent point of view. It's a very puberty, like 
boyish puberty. I'm on a grand quest, and I'm going to save the universe, and I'm going to do it by myself because no one else is coming with me. That's a very simplistic view of the world. And it stems from the fact that not only was he put was the stuff pushed on to him as an adolescent, but he's also kind of dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like, like whenever anyone talks about him, they, they they mention that you're dumb, but you don't stop. Like, yeah, you are extremely methodical and dumb. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, book two was all right. It wasn't my favorite. I think book book two is, you know, the, there are certain books that exist to set up other books, and book two is definitely a thing that really sets up the next one, and obviously a lot of the things that happen up to, you know, really um, the the end of the first part of uh, book seven. Mm-hmm. Like the the this like this is the point where you get to bits that are no long that no like this is the point where no book stands on its own anymore. Like Wrong right. of the Three is not satisfying. I yeah, mean, you, you get a gunfight at the end, but it's not satisfying until you get to the very end where it's like, oh, this is how this friendship he forms falls apart. Yeah, exactly. It, you're right. It's not satisfying by itself. As part of the larger, it, its value comes as part of a larger whole, which, I mean, I'm okay with. Uh, I love long series of television shows, novels, movies, whatever. Uh, but. It's not as bad as Wolves of the Kala. That's that's my, that's my final conclusion on that. Do you have anything else on this one? Um, trying to think. I like Eddie as a character. I think Eddie is. Um, I, I I just think he's very interesting to introduce this guy who does not shut up as to be the foil to, mm-hmm. you know, the the Clint Eastwood wannabe. Right. Well, like I, I also like again. This is comes in like this is the first book that introduces new characters that you're gonna be stuck with, and I also think thematically, <clears throat> one of the the themes of this story is I don't really have a good way of of, of describing this, but it's it's a theme of production. Like the gunslinger is a finished product, more or less. Like court. You see with the flashbacks to court and being kids and all that kind of stuff that they are they are really just lumps of clay and then they are molded into this kind of granite gunslinger versus very hard, rigid, statuesque type person. And it's an interesting process to watch happen with Eddie and Susanna because when they are dumped out of those doors, they are extremely raw. And they don't have a lot of what's already been established as the gunslinger steel. And and watching that evolve over the books is, is a fantastic journey. It's extremely well done. And um, it, it's interesting to see um, the gunslinger get forced into this mentor role, and uh, it becomes a bigger part of um, Wastelands, really. But which we'll get to. But you you see this character who is sort of he's very set and. It's interesting to see him. Like you mentioned, that he's granite, and I almost think of him more as a whetstone. That mm-hmm. you know, he is the thing that grinds everything around him into shape. Yeah, it's not that. It's not just that he's set in his ways. It's that he sets everything else 
almost better. Like ev- everywhere he goes, he is still fixing things to an extent. Right. All right. We're roll on into uh, the wastelands. Yes. All right. So the wastelands. Uh, this is actually I actually like this book less than I like drawing in a three. <laughs> this is the only book in the series, if we if we count the rest of them all together, that uh, I w- I'm not going to say I was disappointed in it, but it wasn't as impacting as the other two books. Like, The Gunslinger feels really, really... It, it relies heavily on a feel and a, and a motif and, like, you get a real sense of things. And, and it's very emotive. The drawing of the three is really symbolic. Like, number three is powerful. There's doors or huge symbols for... I mean, they mean a bunch of things. But with with the drawing of the three, it's, yeah, we're just kind of progressing. It, it's a traveling plot. It's it's akin to the dwarves singing in The Hobbit. We're on our way to go do other stuff, and things happen while we go. This is, this is the book that actually really starts to build more of the setting more than anything else, because mo- most of book two is spent in New York at various points in history, and... Uh, Drawing of the Three is mostly about walking across um, Outworld, and so you start to see, you know, what makes up the, like, um, you know, the actual setting of these books, and you find out it's even weirder than you thought. Cyborg bears and magic beams. Well, the cyborg bear was pretty awesome. Yeah, anything with cyborg bears. Just the cyborg bear was actually like one of the the biggest symbols in the book. Really, like I watched it and I was I saw that and I was like, oh man, this is gonna be great. And then there was like another like two hundred page lull after Shardik is is destroyed. I'm like, ah, oh, son of a bitch. So, right. uh, I mean, a bunch of stuff happens. They pick up Jake midway through. This is also kind of more setup stuff. They pick up Jake, so Roland doesn't go crazy. Uh, Susanna bangs a demon. I'm Which sure it's important later. Yeah, pretty much any time your main character has sex with something that is weird, there's going to be a weird birth later. Yeah. That's a spoiler. <laughs> uh, but really, when that comes up in any other plot, you should be on the lookout for it. And then they pick up Jake, and then they go to Lud. Where people go crazy to ZZ Top. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, who who wouldn't? And then they make a, and then they make a evil AI guided train explode because of faulty logic. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. I was happy the cliffhanger. I was not happy there was a cliffhanger, but I was happy that I did not have to wait very long for the cliffhanger. To be. Like, I finished Wastelands, and Wizard and Glass came out, like, the week after. <laughs> so, Wastelands, I don't have much to say about Wastelands. Yeah. Uh, I think this was... Was was this the introduction of the, the number 19 as a recurring theme? Uh, I don't think that this one's... No, no. 19. No, it was the next one. No, it's Wolves of the Cow. No, no, 19, first, 19 does first show up here, because as Jake's walking past Tower Records... Stone's 19th Nervous Breakdown is playing. Okay. I'll take your yeah. word for it. 
Yeah, that's... I remember the weirdest things. I thought when he did that, Painted Black was playing. Hmm. I'm not sure. That is... Yeah. I will look I'm... that up later, although I don't... We, this intend... will be looked up later. <laughs> although I don't intend to actually do that. <laughs> uh... I don't have much else to say about uh, Wasteland. Yeah, Wasteland... Like, again, there's a lot of books in this that are just transition. And this is one of them. So book four, we have Wizards and Glass. Oh, Wizards and Glass is my absolute favorite book in the entire series. Yes, uh, Wizards and Glass is about, is like 700 pages long, about 600 of that is flashing back. Yeah, and I am am totally on board with that. The flashback is frankly amazing. They could make a movie just of the flashback, and it would be awesome. Like, it, it doesn't even feel like a gunslinger piece. It feels like this kind of cowboy coming of age, complicated political intrigue piece with a whole bunch of pieces on the board that comes together in this this beautiful cyclone at the end, almost a literal cyclone, but not exactly. Yeah. Uh, they set up in the beginning a, a game they're playing, castles that looks pretty much just like chess estimation uh yeah and watching the pieces move around the board getting a sense of roland when he was young and hopeful like he's a completely different person who isn't jaded he's not lonely he's not a bitter old man then uh i love i love a good romance story and the romance in this was was all right i mean it's a bit rushed but most romances are well, especially when you're 16. Yeah, exactly. You see a chick that you like, you're like, oh, I love that chick. I don't even know her name, but I love her. So I, I cannot sing the praises of this book. And there's, I don't know, some weird sex stuff in this book, which I've been lacking. I was actually kind of waiting for that in the Wastelands, but all I got was some demon banging, which, you know, for Stephen King is pretty tame. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's no it. It's nothing, is it? Yeah. Like, there's never been anything else. That's it. <laughs> that is true. So, and and you get to see like the choice at the end of the book is really what drives it. You get to see how he arrives at it, how how the option is presented to him in a way that isn't it isn't leading. Like when 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 he gets presented with a choice, he makes the choice. Not under duress. He, he understands the implications. And he's like, man, this sucks. I'm going to have to leave her, but this, this has to be done. And from his, his reaction to it is a very human, warm reaction. He's conflicted about it. Later, when Susan dies, he's less conflicted because there isn't an option anymore. Which, most of the time, when, when somebody has to make a choice and then something happens that undoes the choice, I'm upset about. But his choice isn't retconned, I think, is the key difference here. It's just that he probably would have had to make go this route. <laughs> it, it's more Greek tragedy than uh, mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Like, most of this is just setting really showing Roland's character in it. The point at which he, uh, the point at which he sort of 
really started to turn into who he was at the beginning of book one. Yeah, I actually, I actually, I forgot to do was I forgot to do the wastelands as an aspect of Roland's character, and the wastelands is a pretty tame, like fantasy adventure. That's he's doing what gunslingers do. He's roaming the countryside, doing stuff. This one is all about the choice. This is this choice, the choice that he makes at the end of book four. And the entire book is set up just to arrive him at this point so that when he makes the choice, you understand what's going to happen. And that choice is probably the, the most defining aspect of his character. That he is willing to sacrifice his own happiness to go and fix the tower. And then he does, and it costs him terribly. So I love, I love the tragedy of it. I love romance, and I love tragedy. So this was good. And I love time travel. So, flashback is kind of like time travel. So this is kind of like romance, tra- tragedy, time travel. I'll roll the well. Then, then he get then he gets the, the the glass, and then he sees the future, which is kind of time travel. So there you go. Then, of course, there's the fact that he somehow ends up in the St. Louis of the Stand, which is maybe time travel, something. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't St. Louis though, was it? No, it's Kansas. No. No, Kansas City, and then th- there was a road sign for St. Louis, yeah. Yeah. If it was St. Louis, I would have commented on it, because that's where I live. And there would have had to have been the requisite ruined arch art bit in the book. Yeah, I mean, if you had a big steel vagina, you would put it in everything you did. Yep. And then I guess we get to Wolves of the Claw, which is... Easily just... the worst book in the series. As Despite as... being a big giant reference to Seven Samurai slash Magnificent Seven. Yeah, despite that, it's like still... usually when usually when a series takes time out to do the Magnificent Seven parody, it tends to be a standout episode. And this, this was one not, not so that. much. <laughs> this was not that. No. Uh Wolves of the Kala when I reread the series every year, I have a hard time doing Wolves of the Kala. Sometimes I skip it. Uh, and I think what bothers me the most about this book is that up until now, we've had a pretty good journey. And here the journey ends because they hang out in the town forever. Well, it's not that they just hang out in the town. Is that there's this big giant section where we learn what a secondary character from Salem's Lot did after the events of the series. Yeah, well, don't get me wrong. I love that bit because Father yeah, that, that's Callahan, a good bit. Yeah, Father Callahan was amazing. Yeah, like Father Callahan's an awesome addition to the cast. It's just they add him and then. The, the series just drops back down into, like, third gear for a big chunk. Yep. And then there's a lot of farming, and a lot of walking around town, and then Roland pulls out this wallet that always has money in it, and, like, just absolutely unnecessary to the plot, but he's got it, and there it is. So, I don't know, it's, this book felt... Up until this book, I did not feel like Stephen King had wasted my time in any of his words. But this book felt like a big waste of my time. It also felt like Roland business as usual. I 
this is what gunslingers are in terms of a society. The gunfight at the end was pretty lame. I don't know, it just wasn't exciting. Like the most exciting thing that happens is that uh, Susanna leaves at the end. Yeah. Which sets like us this... up for the next book. <laughs> yeah, like the and then it introduces things that matter at the beginning of seven. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Like the, the, this is this is a lot of build up that you probably could have shorthanded. Yeah. I, well, it's, it. it's obvious. And it's worth pointing out here that the tone of the books changes now. That Stephen King knows what the end is going to be, and he's starting to introduce elements in book five that he can use in book seven in the conclusion uh, to get to get us there. And it, it seems really heavy-handed at times, where he's like, "Oh, and this is what this thing is. Wonder if that'll come up again." Woo! Yeah. All right. Well. I guess that's cool because it's all—it's still all gunslinger stuff and it's still all awesome. But I kind of had like the first four books have a theme and a tone that imply that it's going to be that way for the rest of the series, and it's not, and it's jarring, and it just seems the transition here is really discordant. So, yeah, it is also worth noting that four, five, and six were basically written back to back. Five, six, and seven. Or 5, 6, and 7, yeah. 5, 6, and 7 were all written back-to-back and did not have the big gaps that uh, the first four had. Yeah, which is weird. Like, you can see the obvious continuity there, but 1, 2, 3, and 4 feel like a more cohesive, emotive piece than 5, 6, and 7, even though they were written at the same time. Like, it, it, it almost... He sacrificed uh, the heart to get the efficiency to pound out the last thing. Which, yeah. Which is, I don't know. I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not an author or at least a good one. So I can't really comment on whether or not that's, that's atrocious, but I felt that I felt a little betrayed reading those books over the original. And before we go into uh, six in heavy detail, five is also where they introduce the fact that five, they set up the fact that, there is at least one universe in the, all the multiverses that they can come in contact to where what happens to the characters in this one is fiction in another. Because we see uh, we, we see Father Callahan find a copy of Salem's Lot, and that, yeah. that becomes big in the next book when they... Well, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get to it. Let's, let's go to book six. Yeah. Where... Song of Susanna. Uh, I was when I was younger. I did not care for Susanna as a character, and as I've gotten older, I've grown to appreciate that there is some pretty compelling symbolism with her character's nature. Like it, it, it's it's a personification of the of, of a struggle, like literally. So I, I dig that now as I'm older and reading through here. But oh man, this book was also a slog to get through. More stuff happens, don't get me wrong, but less stuff than I care about, and the Stephen King things were pretty... Like, I, I appreciate introduce. Well, I, I appreciate that the books have always been a bit postmodern, but actually introducing your author as a major character is, I don't know, maybe too metafiction-y for, to, mm-hmm. for this late in the game. Yeah... 
I appreciate what he was trying to do, and I think he could have done it if he if he tightened up some of the storytelling in five, six, and seven, and made it feel like the originals. But you also have to take into consideration that one, this is post van. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and like the van changed a lot about how he oh, how he wrote. The the van changed a lot about him. Just yeah, just across the board, which. So you, you have to take what happened with a grain of salt, I guess. But, I don't know. It, this is where I felt that the story kind of falls apart. But yeah, like, the the weird thing is that up before the van, there were a lot of Stephen King stories about authors in states of distress. Like, The Shining was that, and, um, what am I thinking of? Secret Window, mm-hmm. and, um, what, what was that one where the crazy fan... Locks up the writer and makes them write the sequel and uh, that's, uh, breaks their ankles. Yeah. It's a one word title, isn't it? Yes. Misery? <laughs> misery, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> that was awful. Yeah, it was Misery. That was a good movie. That was a good book, too. Both those were really compelling. And then there's this weird thing where he gets hit by a van and now it's. It has to be him who's in trouble. Uh-huh. Like, there's there's writing what you know, and then there's just being a little batshit. Yeah. 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 All right. What uh, what else did? Also introduced in this is that um that uh, Roland and Eddie end up going to New York at a couple different points in time, and meeting people who have an active interest in saving the tower in presumably our, what is presumably our world. Yeah. And so he Wait. sets up, he, he, he sets in motion a lot of things to protect the tower in, what, what year do they do that? 97? Yeah, 77. 77. Because so. Eddie almost like skips out to watch Star Wars again. <laughs> so they... They set up a lot. Five and six are just a, a butt ton of setup. Yeah. So, like, uh, oh, this is also when they start. They get really weird with the transfer of semen in this book. Yeah. Like, the demon who bangs Susanna was actually carrying the seed of Roland to bang the demon in book one. And it's like, oh, really? Like, was and that... then we get the crazy demon baby. Yeah, was that necessary? Because it was not. Um, well, I think I think it sort of is because you get this uh, this weird sort of parallel where in the first book, uh, Roland has his like lets his like is willing to kill his symbolic son to carry on with the tower, and then in book six we have his actual son try and come to kill him. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't think you need it to be, you know, mothered by Susanna, yeah, and was, demon, to was, make that happen. It was weird and unnecessary. And I didn't like it. Um, <laughs> so, this is a whole bunch of setup. And I really just want to skip this book and get to book seven. <laughs> Alright, let, let's just get to seven. The Dark Tower. So, with all the setup done from books five and six... Book seven is where 
it starts off so strong. Oh yeah, it, it just hits the ground running like with Per Callahan rushing into the the Dixie Pig and just yeah. laying waste. Owning vampires. Yeah, and the whole redemption scene here, where Father Callahan like for five and six, and he's going on and on about how he feels conflicted and he doesn't feel like God's with him anymore. And then like, I am an absolute sucker for scenes where they have their bright, shining moment of glory. Like, at the end of Two Towers... Well, especially if you're going to give them the shining moment of glory into the heroic sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Like, the end of Two Towers, when they crest that hill, and then they just come down and lay waste to the, the orcs at the bottom. Yes. Give me that scene. And this scene was that combined with the the... Not only the heroic death scene, but there's also that heroic redemption where he's walking up the steps. And he knows. He knows he's not coming. But he knows that it's his place to die there, and that's when he feels it. He feels all of that tension, all of that, that unease kind of slip away, and he feels the presence of what he believes in so strongly, and he feels that grace of God back with him. And he just, he goes in there, and he whips it out for everyone. And, and, and I love those scenes where the man, uh, where he just takes control of the room, and it just ends. And he goes out on top. Even though they kill him, even though they rip him apart, he goes out on top. God, I love that. Yeah. And then they pick up Susanna on the run from Crazy Demon Baby. They... They storm, you know, this psychic compound and just, you know, mm. they, they just take out everything. And then we have the other, my second favorite kind of death, which is the, you think it's done and everyone's safe, and then bang. Yep. Eddie's on the ground. Yep, and then this is, this is, well, Paracallahan was the first gut punch. This is the second this is the hardest gut punch because I think Eddie is pretty much everyone's favorite because he's yeah I mean he's like he's guy. the most personable character of all of them. Not like, only he doesn't that. spend any time crazy. Not only that, but they've spent so much time with the relationship between Eddie and Susanna that your heart just breaks that she's it is the worst that she is still alive and you have to suffer with her through his death and that is just. With, if there wasn't six books of Eddie Dean, you wouldn't know her heartache. But it just crushes you to watch her suffer about this because you feel the same way. And then they go say, and then, and then we get Jake pushing Stephen King out of the way of the van. Yep, and the sacrifice of Jake for for Stephen King is just it, it's it's poetic. I love it. I love every death in this book. Because they all have meeting and they are all a straight punch to the gut. And they all like they all and they all get like a decent denouement to all of them, really. Mm-hmm. Like there's each one gets time to play out before you get hit with another one. Yep. Uh, after the Jake death, we there's wrap this, it. Well, there, there's this a bit of meandering. Yeah, there's a bit of meandering, but it, it feels right though. I mean, because like he he has lost enough people to be a bit directionless. Yeah, and and they still are moving. It's just yeah. slow. <laughs> They've just both slowed down because they don't know what 
Like they 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 have to keep going because they don't know what else to do, mm-hmm. but they can't keep going because there's no one with them. Yep. So they uh, shamble on, really. The Dandelo stuff happens. They pick up Patrick Danville. That wasn't all that great. What I love is what happens next. Yeah. This is this is the part of the books that get. When I first read this, I was so pissed, so pissed, and probably why I hated Suzanne as a character. But man, it feels so right. It feels complete. It feels good. Like it just feels right. Where Susanna has Patrick Danville draw her a door, she opens it, and then she just leaves. And that just feels absolutely right. Like, she wasn't there for the tower. She was always there for Eddie. Yep. And when Eddie was gone, she was done. And then she just rolls out. And then and then uh, the whole... Like, they, they spend two books setting up Mordred as the demon baby that's going to kill Roland, and then, yeah, just and then dispatch him some, some, like, summarily. Yeah, only he kills Oi, which was... That was awful. Like, just kick the dog. Yeah, that was terrible. But I don't think there's room for cute animal sidekicks at the end of this story, either. No, there isn't. Uh, Susanna comes out... I love that they put this before the... Dakota? Yeah, I love that they put this before the coda, that Roland walks She's into the tower, and then Susanna rolls out into alternate 1980s, and Eddie's there, and Jake is there, and yeah. Oi is there. <laughs> Done. Like, that, that to me was, was the punctuation on the end of, of the, the full story, that Susanna gave up on Roland. She just walked out. And because she did, she, <laughs> she like, got what she like, wanted. Yeah. Like, yeah, you, you can have what you want or you can get the tower. Yeah, she had a happy ending. And it's a stark contrast to, the, to Roland, who has, at this point, literally lost everything in his life. Again. <laughs> yeah, again. And he sacrificed it all for the tower. So I love that. Yeah. And then we get to the end. He walks to the tower. There's the roses. He fights the Crimson King. He climbs to the top while having flashbacks. And he gets there, and he's in the desert chasing the man in black. Yeah. Like, uh, um, I'm not a Buddhist, but uh, Buddhist monks say that, uh, the Buddhists always used to say that the the only punishment for a life of a san of a, of a samurai is to be reincarnated as a samurai. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that and it's his redemption plot. And I choose to believe that now that he has the horn, that it will be different this time. Well, I th- I think that's the other thing is that um, they talk about Ka as a wind, but they also talk about Ka as a wheel, and that every time it turns around, maybe he's doing a little better. Yeah. And I choose to believe that this was the last time before he gets his redemption. Yeah, well, yeah, because the, in this case you could talk about the horn as the symbol of the old world, the, of Gaiman yeah. itself. And so, you know, he's got it with him this time. Like, he's carrying a piece of the old world with him beyond the guns. Like, he's, he's got the killing tools, but also a, a, a uniting tool. That, and that he'll get to the top, he'll sound it, and things might get better. Yeah, and if you read the poem that this is based on, that's what he does when he gets there. Yeah. He sounds the horn, signaling the end of not only his quest, <laughs> but the poem. So, 
I choose. We should mention that all this is based on a poem. Yeah. Oh man, I used to carry that poem around with me in high school too. That's how much of a dork I was. One thing I do want to say is that um, what my my sort of second brush with these books was in fairly recently in university when I ended up rereading them all over um, over the course of a uh, TA strike was that. I was taking a class that was sort of about um, traditional and pop culture and how certain stories get reinterpreted in postmodern forms. Uh-huh. So we talked. So we talked about Dracula, and then we talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then the second semester, he changed the curriculum, and I think for the worst because originally his plan was that we would read uh, the, Fellowship, the Fellowship of the Ring, and then read The Gunslinger. And then he changed his mind, and then. The Gunslinger only became recommended reading. So, of course, I was the only one who read it. But uh, the, the point is that uh, the, the Dark Tower is your standard hero's journey type stuff, you know. He goes forth, there are allies, you know, he descends to the cave, retrieves the sword, the whole deal. But uh, usually the point of the journey is uh, that, you know, at the end of it you come out better and it but his but here we have an anti-hero doing the hero's journey. He he's not out to save the world. Like he says a few quite a few times that his only goal is to see the tower. Like he's not interested it in it to save the multiverse it, to save the multiverse. He's in it to prove that it to himself that it exists. That at the end of the day he he's something of an amoral bastard and that Everything he does is in the interest of pursuing this one goal that only betters himself. Like any uh-huh. anything, any good he does is almost incidental. Yeah, and uh, almost you could almost look at the quest as a as a, the end point of proving to himself that he did the right thing. Like it, it's not a quest to do the right thing; it's to prove that he did the right thing. Yeah, exactly. Which is a very it's a very meta way of looking at. It. And then, and then the fact you bring up the fact that this is this might be a redemptive cycle for him, that you know the the trip to the tower is him, it is him saving himself. Right. And then no one in the class ever actually caught on to that. And I think at one point I actually gave a brief lecture on how to read Fellowship of the Ring without actually reading Fellowship of the Ring. <laughs> Wait, it's true. Uh, the the short notice. Short notice tutorial got cancelled, and I, a bunch of people showed up and were in the middle of trying to force their way through the first hundred pages of the first book, and I'm like, okay, here's how you do it. Yeah. Anything Any else other... to bring up? <laughs> uh, ah, you no, go first. I did not have anything else I wanted to bring up. I think I'll just say that, uh, that, that this is definitely worth the read, and um, now that we've started, kind of spoiled yeah. everything... Do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, actually, go reread it. If you've listened this far, you're invested, and you probably reread it right now. And with that, I'm gonna bid you all good night. Yep. See ya. See ya. Uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Please do not hurry up now. It's license. Check out our website at SBO. Check us out on Twitter at SBO Podcast or our Facebook page at I Thought They Smell Bad on the Inside. Or kick me an email at SBO Podcast at gmail.com.